You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Presents podcast. This week, we have economist Seyfedin Amus, author of The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking. He joins to explain his analysis of both gold and Bitcoin, drawing on his extensive knowledge as an Austrian economist. Amus touches on the far-reaching implications of various monetary systems throughout history and singles out the paradoxes of Keynesianism. This conversation is hosted by Marty Bent and was filmed on October 9th, 2019 in New York. For Real Vision, I'm Drew Bissett. Hi, I'm Marty Bent, uh, founder of TFTC.io, here for Real Vision. Today, sitting down with Seyfedina Moose, economist and author of The Bitcoin Standard. Safe, how are we doing today? Very good. Thank you so much for hosting me, Marty. Very happy to be sitting down with you here today in a, in a foreign land in Real Vision, but very excited about the conversation. Likewise. So we're here to talk about uh, the gold standard versus the Bitcoin standard, and we've been having brief conversations about this leading up to this. I think the best way to start is uh, to describe how the world came to a gold standard originally and how that got bastardized to, to an extent. Yeah, I think the um, interesting thing uh, I discuss in my book about the gold standard, my book is about the Bitcoin standard. However, about uh, 70% of the book is dedicated toward discussing uh, the monetary history and primarily gold. And I think learning about gold and the gold standard is extremely significant for Bitcoin for a couple of reasons we'll get into in a bit. But I think the interesting thing about gold is that it became a global monetary standard without anybody having to politically decide upon it. Governments recognized gold as money, but it was the market that chose it as money before governments recognized it. And the choice of gold emerging as the global monetary standard was not a political decision. Political decisions recognized the reality of the monetary choice. So the world previously had used copper, silver, and gold, but by the end of the 19th century, practically the entire planet was using gold as money, and people who were still on silver had suffered enormously from the massive devaluation of silver. So what we saw was the spontaneous market monetization of gold as a universal monetary medium used all over the world. And so that primarily, in my mind, goes back to the uh, stock-to-flow ratio of gold. The fact that gold has the lowest percentage increase in its supply reliably, year in, year out. This is how it uh, has operated because of its chemical properties, which mean that its existing stockpiles 
um, don't trust, don't corrode. So all of the gold that we've been piling up for thousands of years, all the gold that we've accumulated over thousands of years of gold production, all of that is sitting somewhere there. People hold it and it's very valuable, they take care of it and nothing can ruin it. It can't rust, it can't corrode, it can't evaporate. Um, so therefore, the stockpiles of gold continue to increase every year. Every year we just add more gold to the stockpiles that we have and we don't consume any. And so the quantity of gold that exists is very large. And so every year as we're adding to it, the, the addition that we add every single year is small compared to the existing stockpile. And that means that every year the primary market for gold is made up of people who already own the existing supply selling to people who want to buy new, uh, some of that. So the market is made up of holders buying and selling, uh, but there's a very small section of the market that's made up of new supply, of miners providing new supply. And this, I think, is the key property that made gold a monetary standard and made gold successful as money because it means that should its price rise, the only way for uh, people to make more of it or is to bid up the price further and to buy more of it uh, from people who hold it. And so therefore it's useful as a store of value because people who hold it don't have to worry about some new way of increasing the supply, which increases the um, available supply in the market and brings the price down. And so therefore, with gold mining being consistently and reliably a small percentage of gold supply, and the percentage is around 1% to 2% every year. Every year we add around 1% or 2% to the global stockpiles of gold. Every year we make a little bit more, but every year we get a bigger stockpile, so the growth rate continues at around 1% to 2% per year. And so this means that every on any given day, the quantity of gold that's being bought and sold is largely made up of people who hold it. And I think this is what I argue in my book was the primary reason why gold won out over other monetary metals. Silver was more popular. It was used by more people. You know, the, by, at the beginning of the 19th century, it was common that poor people would, or um, and the richer people would be the ones who used gold and it would be used for major transactions. Silver was uh, more of the poor man's money. And more people used silver, more people held silver, and yet it couldn't hold on to its monetary role because, I think, because of the stock-to-flow. So you mentioned two things there. It's durability over time, and again, it's stock-to-flow, so it's scarcity. Um, how did the market throughout history come to, uh, come to coalesce around a gold standard? What other monies were they using? You mentioned silver there, but how did the gold standard take over, and uh, how did... How did it basically get washed away over the last hundred years. Yeah, I mean, I think the the contention that I make in my book is that um, it, we didn't even need for anybody to consciously make the decision that they wanted to go on gold. Economic reality imposed this decision on the world simply through the fact that people who chose other things as money in the long run watched the value of their money corrode and lose its value. And so yeah, the, the only store of value that remains at the end of the day will be whatever is good at storing value. And so, um, you know, if you if you think about it on a longer off timeline, several centuries, um, you know, even, even if people had absolutely no conception of what works well as money and they didn't even learn about it, over a long enough timeline, and people randomly allocate their choice of money over random metals, over a long enough timeline, money will end up being gold just because if people put their money in copper, 
it's trivial for copper miners to flood the supply of coppers, bring the price down, and then effectively take away the stored value in the copper from the people who stored it in it by increasing the supply. Gold is the only thing that resists that. So if we have random wealth allocation by people over a, hundred, over a couple of hundred years, at the end of that, because of all the inflation that happens to the supply of all the other monies, the wealth allocated to gold would be the only good wealth that has held on to its value. And so in my mind, I think, you know, by the early, by the late 20th century, what started happening was more and more people were uh, moving toward gold. And the reason for it was because of the development of new methods of payment, wherein you no longer needed to use the physical gold itself for payment or the physical silver coin itself, but instead you were using uh, financial instruments backed by it. So either paper notes or bills or letters of credit from banks or all kinds of uh, different financial instruments that were utilized by banks in the 19th century that did not involve the physical movement of gold. And that's where the term the gold standard came in, that you're transacting with papers or credit obligations that are denominated in gold without having to move the physical gold around. And so once this became possible, once people were using this extensively, the monetary case for silver uh, was lost. There was no longer any reason for anyone to use silver because the reason people were sil using silver in the first place was because it was less valuable than gold, me making its smaller value coins useful for small transactions. But now that you're no longer using the coin itself, you're using instruments backed by the coin, there's no reason why you would want your instruments or your paper backed by the um, easier money, by the money that is easier to inflate, you'd rather have it in the harder money. And so in the 19th century, we witness as individuals and countries started to move more and more toward gold. And perhaps the tipping point, um, some people think of it as the cause, it's not actually, it's not, it's not accurate to think of it as the cause, but it is the, it, it, it's the trigger or the tipping point was the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, when the Germans who were on a silver standard, and Germany was the largest economy left on the silver standard, when the Germans asked the, uh, well, after the war, the Germans asked for their indemnity from France in uh, gold, and then used that to go on the gold standard, took their gold, took French gold and used it to go on the gold standard. Once that happened, really tipped the balance in favor of gold and against silver. And since then, the price of silver has been on a nonstop decline against gold. So it used to be at around uh, 14 15 to 1, the price of an, uh, the, the exchange rate of silver to gold, 15 ounces of silver for one ounce of gold or something like that. Today, it's closer to 100 almost, and it's just been continuously declining. And I think uh, what we see is just the demonetization of silver. Silver is now an industrial metal. And even though some people still use it as a monetary metal, the use of it as a monetary metal is uh, almost entirely insignificant toward its uh, market price because it's not a monetary metal, the amount of value in it that's stored is very little, and it is used heavily in an industrial way. And we see this reflected in its stock and flow ratio. It used to have the second highest stock to flow ratio uh, after gold, but it's now declined. And so in, in my mind, I think, you know, the market wants one money. And, uh, you know, there's no such a thing as a second money. It's only partial form of barter. And so the market will tend toward money on its own. And that's how uh, gold eventually became money. However, it later was to lose its monetary role precisely because of this advantage that it had over silver, because of how the way it monetized silver meant that it was being used as money effectively um, having to trust central banks. Although gold 
once you were using financial instruments that uh, were backed by gold, then where the gold was stored and how transactions denominated in gold were processed and settled and cleared between financial institutions became far, far more significant than it did before. And it gave the people who run these uh, payment and settlement network an enormous amount of power and leverage over the control of gold. And so in effect, you could say that really once we moved toward the gold standard, it, it, it became much easier to um, compromise gold's uh, high stock-to-flow ratio uh, because it was much harder to keep track of how much gold there was and people could issue more paper receipts than there is gold. And effectively, governments, um, you know, the temptation of taking over the central banks was too strong for governments. Governments took it over and then realized they could use it to finance wars, which is what happened in World War One. And since then, they have not been uh, willing or able to give up the temptation of resorting to the printing press. And it's been, in my mind, the reason why the 20th century was the century of the state, of rise of the nation state, then the, the, the rise of this idea of the nation state as... Um, you know, somebody is it's almost the replacement of your father and mother. It's there to protect you and to provide for you and to educate you and to, um, uh, to you know, take care of your health and all of those things. Everything that we had usually associated with the family has uh, been thrown on the nation state because the nation state, you know, once it has this magic printer, there's no limit to what it can do. And there's no limit to what uh, its citizens think it can do. And there's no limits to what its politicians want to promise its citizens. And so the 20th century was the century of um, politicians, governments uh, taking advantage of the printing press, um, voters being duped into thinking that this is uh, a free lunch, that you know government money doesn't, uh, government spending doesn't have an opportunity cost, that government can just conjure up resources. And we've had entire uh, crank schools of thought being invented to popularize these ideas like, you know, the Keynesian economists who tell you not to worry about tomorrow because we're all dead in the long run. And this this really, I think, um, you know, um, gold fans would like to say this is a failure of uh, central banking and a failure of governments, but I think, and, and I used to think that way, you know, there's nothing wrong with the gold standard, it's just that governments have mismanaged it. And I think there's definitely a point in that, but I think uh, once Bitcoin came around and you start thinking more about it from an engineering perspective, you start thinking, oh, there is something wrong with the gold standard, which is that it, governments can mess it up if they choose to. And it would be nice if we had something that was immune to the control of government. Yeah, it's very uh, centralized, if you will. I believe at one point there was a gold fixing desk, right? And that's how they would fix the price of gold every day. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And uh, to think that uh, something that should be apolitical and, yeah. and open to the market has been so centralized. And I think that's what Bitcoiners uh, would argue is that uh, the gold standard was bastardized by centralization. Um, so I guess it's a good segue naturally into the properties of Bitcoin and uh, what, how a Bitcoin standard would compare to a gold standard. What, uh, um, what traits does Bitcoin have similar to gold? How are they different? How are mm -hmm. they potentially better or worse? Yeah, so I think the two differences, the two main ways in which we can distinguish between gold and Bitcoin, uh, the first one is in terms of the stock-to-flow ratio. Bitcoin, for me, uh, the, the reason I was fascinated with it initially was to just find out, when I found out that its supply continues to decline over time, and to think that eventually it reaches zero, that there's no more supply growth. When we're we're going to get to a point where uh, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins, and that's it, and there's nothing else that uh, anybody can produce. In a sense, this makes it 
more of a gold than gold. It's, it's you know, it's uh, it makes gold like silver, meaning the second highest stock to flow of a commodity. And uh, it's quite interesting what the market is going to think of this, um, because you know, in in a couple of years, gold's growth, so Bitcoin's supply growth rate will be lower than uh, gold's, and then eventually it's going to be zero. So it'll be interesting to see whether this is more important for the market than. Um, you know, the tradition and the history and the physicality that comes with gold and the, whether uh, Bitcoin is going to continue to grow uh, as a result of this. Uh, so that, that for me is, is, is astonishing. And in fact, uh, Bitcoin improves on gold in this regard because uh, Bitcoin's fixed supply means that it is the first liquid commodity or liquid asset ever invented uh, that has a supply that is truly fixed. You can't make more of it. It is completely irresponsive to demand. And I think this is a point that is not emphasized enough about Bitcoin. The supply of Bitcoin every day is being increased according to the preset schedule that was um, set about 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And every day it increases by that amount, regardless of how many people are trying to use Bitcoin or how many people want to buy it. So tomorrow, if 7 billion people want to use Bitcoin, we're only going to be making 1,800 bitcoins. If only seven billion, uh, sorry, if only seven people want to use Bitcoin, that will also mean um, only 1,800 new coins are being produced every day. That's just the way that the program works, and there's nothing like it because with everything else, you can always dig deeper, you can always find more. And so, this is is quite interesting because it means that maybe Bitcoin is going to. Um, is going to become a harder form of gold and its complete irresponsiveness to demand is going to just make its price continue to increase more and more. This is one way of thinking of it. However, I'm not entirely sure this is the most important thing that Bitcoin has going for it. And I'm not entirely sure that this on its own would be enough for Bitcoin to succeed. I think what is, um, from an engineering perspective, if you want, what is necessary for it to succeed is the fact that it is decentralized and the fact that it exists as a neutral protocol that for all practical intents and purposes, nobody can really change, nobody can affect. And this is truly astonishing because, um, you know, if my analysis, um, and it's not originally my analysis, but if the analysis that I mentioned about why gold failed um, why we moved off the gold standard. If that is uh, indeed correct, then Bitcoin was designed, you could argue, specifically to get around this one failure that the gold standard has, ha had, or has actually, we should say, still has it, which is the need for physical central settlement in highly centralized uh, operations. So I think um, the key thing to understand when comparing the two is, what is the cost for you if you wanted to set up a business, a bank, call it, or call it the central bank, or whatever it is, if you wanted to set up a business that is able to send this kind of money and settle uh, across the world, if you're able to offer final clearance with, um, say, between the US and China in a monetary commodity, I think it's useless to think about what is the cost of setting this up to understand the real value of Bitcoin's proposition. If you want to set it up using government money, effectively, you have to be part of a national monopoly in every country that is um, essentially the central bank and the private banks. Um, and it's, 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 it's a closed monopoly that is not really open for people to enter or exit quite easily. Um, if you want to use it with gold, 
you know, you'd need to build a network of banks around the world that are able to physically settle and physically move gold across the world. And obviously it won't be, you know, we won't be making physical movements of gold for every transaction, but you'll have a central bank in a city or in a country that uh, settles with another central bank at the end of the day or week or month uh, with an actual physical shipment of gold. That's extremely expensive. So to think about sending gold from the US to China, uh, we can remember a few years ago when uh, Germany tried to repatriate some of its gold from uh, the US and it cost several million dollars and it took several years to move um, German gold from the US to Germany. So you can see something similar happen with, um, if, you, if, if we had a global monetary system built on physical gold, you'd have a very expensive global settlement network. And that would necessarily mean, because of the economies of scale, it would necessarily result in the centralization of gold banking into only a few international banks that are able to offer this capability. Because the amount of capital involved, the amount of security and risk and um, all of the operational and logistic issues that would be involved mean that we're going to have to economize by putting and batching many, many transactions together. We end up with, as we did at the end of the 19th century, a few dozen central banks around the world, and most of the wealth is concentrated in the central banks. Pretty easy and convenient honeypot for governments to come and take over, issue their own money, and start devaluing uh, the wealth and savings of uh, people because they effectively uh, control and own the gold. With Bitcoin, on the other hand, if you wanted to set up the equivalent of a gold central bank with Bitcoin, it's nowhere near as complicated. It costs a few hundred dollars a month, uh, a few hundred dollars as a startup cost, and a few dozen dollars a month in bandwidth and um, uh, possibly, you could say, time investment in managing the node, whatever. But really, what you need to do in Bitcoin is to run a full Bitcoin node. If you run a full Bitcoin node, you are effectively... Um, like a gold central bank, because you're able to verify every Bitcoin transaction going, play, going on anywhere in the world. You're able to verify its validity. You don't have to trust anybody. So you don't just go by the fact that your bank is telling you that they took delivery of your gold shipment. You verify it yourself. And you're able to send money with your node. You're able to send Bitcoin across international borders. You could send a billion dollars to China and have it confirm in an hour or a couple of hours. So when you think about the cost of that versus the cost of sending a billion dollars worth of gold, you can see where the real advantage for Bitcoin is. It's so distributed, so decentralized, that it is quite feasible for us to have tens of thousands of central banks. And we likely do right now. We have tens of thousands of uh, Bitcoin nodes already. So we already see that Bitcoin is already big enough to handle a network of thousands or tens of thousands of um, independent nodes or independent central banks that are each, um, you know, peers on the network. Each one of these nodes gets to set its own rules in the same way like everybody else. They're all equal. There isn't a node that can determine and dictate rules on everybody else, as is the case with um, international central banking, where, you know, the U.S. Federal Reserve is effectively the only full node to borrow a Bitcoin terminology because it's the one that sets the rules for everybody else. Well, I think this is important. This is an important point to drive home, right? Because there are a bunch of exchanges and individuals that hold a, a, a great amount of Bitcoin uh, 
themselves, right? Vest, a lot of Bitcoin is held by centralized custodians and exchanges. Even so, Bitcoin still has a better chance at being more distributed than a gold standard. Yes, because ultimately you could, you know, you could still quite easily move um, Bitcoin outside of the exchange and then send it yourself. The, we know Bitcoin's proven capacity of doing about half a million transactions a day. It's done this. So we know that it can handle half a million transactions a day. And even assuming there are no improvements to Bitcoin at all over time, we could... Um, we, we, we can be fairly certain that we can get away with this kind of number. And if you think about it, you know, uh, 500,000 final settlement transactions taking place across the world, each one being concluded every day in under a couple of hours, is just a, a, as an engineering uh, feat, if you think about it, it's just like in terms of engineering capacity compared to what we could settle every day with gold, it's in just enormously larger. And this is why I think, you know, Bitcoin's transactions real value proposition is not going to be in uh, direct person-to-person -person payments, but across border payments and settlement payments across international border. That's where the real comparative advantage shines through. But safe, I thought Bitcoin was digital cash. Yes. <laughs> so so let's, uh, let's jump into that. Digital cash. Yes. What is the de definition of digital cash? This was a debate you actually had with George Selgin here in New York earlier this summer. Yep. Can Bitcoin be used as a medium of exchange? Uh, there's a lot of confusion uh, 11 yep. years in as to what the definition of a medium of exchange is and more importantly, what digital cash is yes. and how uh, transactions work at the protocol level. Yeah, so the term cash today has come to mean money for small transactions. It's the small change that's in your pocket that you use to buy your coffee or your lunch. And this is a, an evolution in the term. But traditionally, what the term referred to, cash referred to money that doesn't have a counterparty liability. And so cash refers to money that is settled after you receive it and then doesn't involve somebody else having to make payments for you or having to come um, fulfill obligations. And so the uh, opposite of cash is credit. And so if I pay with cash, um, you know, that payment is over. If I pay with credit, that payment still needs to go through you know, my bank going to your bank and them settling with one another. And it'll take several weeks or maybe months for this uh, transaction to be finalized. If you read 19th century economic uh, books, and I highly recommend you should, pretty much nothing in the 20th century compares, <laughs> <laughs> or at least, you know, early 20th century. But if you read old economic books, you know, particularly old Austrian economists, you see that the term cash was used to refer to gold and to refer to central bank uh, reserves and, and a cash when central banks carry out a transaction with one another that is a cash transaction that is more the, a cash transaction than when you actually pay with your uh, dollar bill for your coffee because your dollar bill while it is in a sense cash it's not exactly cash because it's still kind of the liability of the federal reserve and your coffee seller if they take it you know the federal reserve could inflate the money supply uh, five minutes later and then destroy the value of their uh, piece of paper, which is in a sense um, undermines the claim for paper money to be cash. I think it's, it's a bit of a misnomer to call um, paper money cash. It's more accurately used to refer to gold. And in fact, one could really argue that the problems of uh, the gold standard started when governments started telling people uh, that their banknotes are as good as cash or as good as gold and then they started calling them cash and here we are. 
So, so the question then becomes, when we think about cash, when we think about Bitcoin as being cash, it's far more powerful to think of cash in the traditional sense as central bank reserve, as final settlement money, as money that is nobody's liability. And when you think of it this way, and you understand the capabilities, um, and, and you understand the, 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 the economic implications of having a technology that is able to do this, I think it's, 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 it's absolutely startling about the economic and political implications of that. And it also really puts into perspective just the, the idea that, you know, uh, consumer payments are just a completely insignificant, not completely, but it's a massively insignificant um, engineering problem, relatively insignificant engineering problem toward building a global monetary uh, system for settlement in a neutral asset. And that's really the, the value proposition. Yeah, and that's not even to be... That's not even to say that a payments network can't be built on top of this protocol, right? Correct. And that's, uh, I think, a good framing for thinking of Bitcoin transactions at the protocol uh, layer was presented by Nick Carter. Think of transactions on the protocol layer more like shipping containers than individual parcels or, or your mail exactly. trucks going out in the city. Exactly. And you don't use a shipping container to have your um, Amazon order of three books delivered to your home. It's unworkable. But... Your ship, a shipping container was probably almost certainly used in the making of those books that were shipped to you. Either they were shipped with a shipping container or, you know, the material that went into producing them was used as a shipping container. So we all use shipping containers in everything that we buy, but none of us has any idea how to charter a large uh, ship and send it across oceans. And yet everything we consume uh, every day is likely been on one of these. And I think it's useful to think of it this way. It's useful to think of Bitcoin from this regard because one Bitcoin transaction can move, as I said, a billion dollars to China in a couple of hours. How, and, and I think it's not a matter of opinion and people just should come to terms with the economic reality. If you're thinking of using a Bitcoin transaction to pay for your coffee um, next door, you know, the alternative, if you can't use Bitcoin, the alternative is you use your credit card and they charge you 3% on $1, so 3 cents, or, you know, you pay cash and um, physical cash and it's a little inconvenient. But, you know, the cost of making that transaction using any way other than Bitcoin is very slow. So it's very low. So if the Bitcoin transaction fee rises, people who are buying their coffee with Bitcoin are just going to buy it with some other forms. But for the person who's shipping a billion dollars from the US to China, to China, their alternative is extremely expensive. Their alternative is going through political institutions and taking time and um, you know having to go through governments and so on, plus all of the political and regulatory stuff that comes with it. So those people will naturally be willing to pay a much higher price for uh, such a large transaction. And I think it's uh, th this is the way in which Bitcoin is going to uh, grow eventually. The, the base layer itself will be used for the large transactions, will be used for large settlement uh, transactions. But second layer solutions like things like the Lightning Network or even uh, fully trusted second layer solutions that will be developed on top of it will handle the brunt of the majority of the small uh, transactions that people use, which do not need the level of security that Bitcoin has. You know, your $1 coffee does not need to have a security system that is more expensive to hack than $100, you know, and Bitcoin currently needs a lot more than $100 to hack. So it's complete overkill uh, to, to, to use Bitcoin for your coffee. No, and I think this is a, a great segue into uh, gold versus Bitcoin moving into the future, right? Mm -hmm. So 
it seems that we're living in an environment in which central banks may be losing control of the, the reins that they've had for about a century now. And a big question uh, in Austrian economic circles and hard money circles in particular is, if we move forward, will the world uh, revert to a gold standard or could a Bitcoin standard uh, potentially take over in the future? And I think an interesting uh, story that's uh, sort of developing in, in the world right now is uh, you looked at Venezuela, and I'm not talking about Venezuela, the people in the street in Venezuela, I'm talking about Maduro and the Maduro regime. So we were talking about uh, getting gold repatriated. We were talking about how Germany it took years and millions of dollars to get it repatriated. Uh, Maduro went to go get his gold repatriated, and they said, no, like you're, you're a dictator, we're not going to give you your gold. And so what we're coming to find is that Maduro and the Maduro regime uh, may be turning to Bitcoin to, to do international trade. And there's rumors swirling that he's sending individual citizens to local Bitcoins to buy Bitcoin, sending it to a, uh, a wallet that he has control of, and then buying goods from other countries like Russia and China. What does this say about the state of gold versus Bitcoin right now? I mean, I think the, um, the what this episode and all these other episodes uh, expose is just the fundamental limitation uh, of this archaic uh, 19th century technology we have that is national central banks and uh, the notion of having a global monetary system that is run on national currencies. It's more of a 20th century, I should say, but the notion to a 20th century technology, but the notion that the entire global monetary system is based on the U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar accepting institutions that are regulated by the Federal Reserve means that the entire planet is effectively under the monetary jurisdiction of the Federal Reserve. And this is kind of a big problem because the U.S. is just one country out of many countries and it has its own interests and it has its own politicians and its own um, and they have their own designs of their own things that they want to do. And these are not always the best things for people in other countries. Um, that's why you have other countries. <laughs> and so the problem is that once a one country controls the monetary system in a political international monetary system, then the, um, you know, the rules of the global monetary system become inextricably linked to the politics of the country that controls it. And that's a huge problem for many of the other countries. And it's almost impossible for a country like the US not to abuse its privilege in, in service of its uh, political uh, and economic goals. And so sanctions on Iran or in Venezuela or in any other country um, are in many ways enforced through payment networks and through banking uh, restrictions. And this is one very important tool that the US uses to enforce its will on the rest of the world, not mentioning, of course, the massively important uh, impact that having inflationary money that is used around the world affords the US. Um, or, or, or the benefit that it affords the U.S. from the fact that they can effectively uh, export their inflation. They print money, but the whole world has to use their money, and so the whole world, world is using the dollar. So all of these things, and as, as you mentioned, you know, the, 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 the kind of intellectual bankruptcy of central bankers driving people down to zero um, percent interest, completely uncharted uh, waters, they don't know what they're doing, they don't sound like they know what they're doing, and people don't sound like they believe they know what they're doing. Well, we've got to the point where you have the President of the United States uh, screaming at the Federal Reserve Chairman on Twitter at least once a week because yep. the dollar is not strong enough. And this is something we talked about before we hit record. It's some weird Orwellian play that the dollar's too strong, but nobody talks about the, dollar, the dollar's relative strength because it's really yep. strong because 
all the other currencies are devaluing at a faster pace. Yeah, it's the dollar really is the king of all the national currencies. And in effect, you know, once you once I studied 19th century monetary history and how silver died, and when I look at um, the fate of digital currencies other than Bitcoin, it becomes it, it starts to look increasingly. Um, weird that we even have other national currencies other than the dollar. And I think uh, I would not be surprised if within 20 years time, the vast majority of national currencies are gone or pegged to the dollar effectively. I don't think it makes sense for us to have several national currencies. It's economically, obviously, it's completely wasteful. It's, it's, a, it's a global system of barter. It's, it's insane that if, if somebody in the US wants to buy something from someone in Canada who lives 10 minutes away, they can't actually trade using money. They have to go back to barter because the American has to sell his US dollars, buy Canadian dollars, and then use the Canadian dollars to buy the Canadian good, which is just another way of going back to barter. So I think this, this kind of um, global barter system around different currencies is... It's extremely costly, and it has all of the political problems, and it gives the U.S. an enormous leverage over international politics, and it's um, unworkable because it's not a neutral system, and you know um, it's unworkable from an economic perspective because we have all of these central banks and international organizations like the uh, IMF, the World Bank, and the BIS. All of the things that they're doing, you know. Uh, what they're trying to achieve, if they succeed, which they never do, but if they did succeed, all of the things that they claim to want to be achieving are things that the gold standard could achieve spontaneously. There was no World Bank or IMF or any of these um, useless institutions back in the 19th century because the, they weren't needed to make gold work because gold is a free market money. But when you're trying to make a... Um, when you're trying to, when when we've destroyed the market for money, when we've destroyed the free market for money, destroyed people's free choice of money, and we're forcing them to make do with completely inferior forms of money that are under political control. This requires an enormous amount of political manipulation and political coordination, and international uh, politics. I mean, it's a, it, it, in the 19th century there were no treaties between governments, or very few treaties. Um, were needed to make the world the gold standard work, and whatever treaties occurred between governments on money were really just rather about you know just the operational aspects and uni unifying protocols for um, how to exchange value. But in 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 real terms, um, the monetary system, the gold standard, as I was mentioning earlier, it emerged on the market, and governments adjusted their own institutions and their own laws to reflect the market's choice for money. The 20th century, we have to have this extremely political system in order to determine what gets used as money. And I think it's uh, it, it's becoming increasingly archaic and it's looking increasingly ridiculous and increasingly unworkable. And um, you know, with the move toward interest rate, I think it's it's just the, 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 the exposition of the bankruptcy of the model, if you ask me, of the model for the way that I see it is, you know, Easy money managed by government was a was an unsustainable bubble and a phenomenon that was a complete historical outlier over the last uh, few decades. It's um, it, uh, for people who have been alive for the past few decades, it has understandably come to take the shape of um, you know normalcy because this is all that we've been we've seen. But I think if you look at throughout human history, this is a complete aberration. And it is an, aber an aberration that has been possible because central banks have effectively continuously devalued the value of money, giving themselves and their governments enough money to continuously um, 
spend and and and, and um, buy political support and so on. And um, the, the 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 price of it was that banking was always um, and finance was highly unstable. And now, after two thousand eight and after two thousand nine, you know, when central banks tried to move toward a system that's safer, the only way that they have managed to make it safer was effectively to return to fra- full reserve banking. This is what we have right now, because right now. Banks have so much reserves. Well, we haven't returned to full reserve banking, but we're getting much, much closer. Banks have so much reserves. Central banks are ready to give banks and financial institutions such large amounts of liquidity at any sign of distress, at any sign of a problem, that effectively liquidity no longer has any cost to them. And effectively liquidity, and so they're not willing to pay interest to customers to save. And so the incentive to save is being destroyed. And um, what we've reached right now is that in order to make this unsustainable um, historical anomaly look a little bit safe and prevent it from crashing, we needed to get to a point where we effectively make it impossible to, for people to have savings. And so um, I, I think um, it's, it's interesting how this thing evolves. I can't see governments backtracking. I can't see governments um, digging their way out of this hole because they've dug too deep and they can't even see uh, the sky from where they've reached. So I'm not uh, I'm not optimistic about them reversing course. And I think the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is almost like a technological way of getting out of this uh, engineering um, and economic catastrophe that is, uh, in my mind, government-managed easy money. And it's, it's an amazing thing to think of it this way because Bitcoin is effectively this new asset that has gone from zero to around 200 billion in um, 10 years. And um, during this time, uh, as it is being, as it is rising in its value, it's effectively being monetized. We are monetizing a new asset. And so we're, we're buying this asset that had very little value. And every time somebody buys it and holds it, they're appreciating the value of it. And so we're making it more of a money and increasing its value and increasing the size of its liquidity. So, as this grows, I think the really astonishing thing to think about in terms of its impact is to think, what happens if Bitcoin continues to do what it's done over the last 10 years, over the next 100 years? Uh, continuous growth and continuously uh, increasing. So one scenario people will imagine as, well, everybody wants to hold Bitcoin because Bitcoin's going up. Everybody dumps the dollar. So the dollar dumps further and the dollar goes to zero and we have hyperinflation of the dollar and national currencies and we move to a system based on Bitcoin. I think that misses a very important point, which is looking at the impact of moving to a Bitcoin, uh, as people move toward the Bitcoin economy, we need to look also at the supply side of money, at the supply side of the dollar. So the initial implication is, okay, people want Bitcoin, so people are gonna demand more Bitcoin, they'll demand fewer dollars. But what about the impact on the supply of the dollar? I think this is something that doesn't get mentioned enough. And I've written uh, one of the research reports on my website, which is available for purchase, on this one particular point. Um, And the idea is, um, as people um, move toward Bitcoin, we're moving toward a hard asset-based economy and not a debt-based economy. And so similarly, in the you know, in the current economy, money is the monetization of debt. Every time a bank issues a new loan, new money is being created, and so the money supply is being increased. And that's why this economy is so addicted to debt, because the institutions that issue debt are effectively printing new money. Bitcoin allows us to monetize something new, something other than debt. 
So every time somebody moves away from the dollar system to a Bitcoin system, they're also more likely moving away to a model of financing their own expenditure out of their own equity because they have hard assets that appreciates. They can hold on to their hard asset as opposed to the dollar, which you don't want to hold on to because it's expected to depreciate and therefore you finance yourself from debt. And so now under a fiat standard, everybody borrows for their car, their home, their wedding, all of your major expenses you borrow in order to um, fulfill them, in, in order to meet them. Under a gold standard, it was different. People would save up money all their life. You know, as a child, you get born and you get given some money and you keep um, accumulating it. And then when you have a major expense, you bought it from your savings. So if we imagine that for the next 100 years, the Bitcoin economy is going to continue to grow, the impact is not just going to be a reduction in the demand for dollars, it's also going to be a reduction in the supply of dollars. And that's actually astonishing if you think about it, because this is, it might just be a very um, clean way of upgrading away from a debt-based monetary system that has reached its limit on its ability to create debt when everyone and everything is up to its eyeballs in debt and can't borrow anymore and the monetary system can't issue more, uh, can't facilitate more credit because people don't want to borrow anymore uh, and so, um, you know, the, 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 arguably, this is part of the reason, uh, this is slowing the economy down. Well, Bitcoin is offering us a free market way of exiting this debt-based system toward a hard equity-based system. And I think this is truly fascinating because generally Bitcoiners and um, anybody who analyzes it think, you know, the, the, the route for victory for Bitcoin is effectively to turn every country into Zimbabwe and Venezuela with hyperinflation. And the only way out of that hyperinflation will be Bitcoin. And I think you know, it might well be worth looking at this other um, scenario, which is not a hyperinflationary Venezuela scenario, but more of a smooth upgrade scenario. Individually, people move toward the Bitcoin economy, and then they, uh, the, the old fiat economy, the amount of debt in it begins to reduce because people are paying off their debts and not taking out as much debt, and the demand for the money begins to reduce. So we could have that monetary system um, I mean, obviously, it's, 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 it's a much more complicated story that you could get into, into the research and discussing the uh, likelihood of hyperinflation and so on. But ultimately, hyperinflation is a supply phenomenon. It doesn't happen because people decide to drop the Venezuelan um, Bolivar that it collapses. It's because the supply of the Bolivar goes up and then people drop it. And so as long as I think, in my mind, as long as central banks don't inflate their money supply insanely, then you shouldn't, Bitcoin wouldn't bring about hyper-Bitcoinization, uh, sorry, hyperinflation. A rise of Bitcoin shouldn't bring about hyperinflation. Should be, yes, and this is one of the most fascinating parts of your book and the concept that I'm very happy that you wrote about and is becoming more popular is the concept of time preference, like high versus low time preference, uh, accumulating capital for the future. And so that's one thing I think would be important to hone in on here is how a debt-based uh, economy incentivizes high time preference actions, yeah. and then what that leads to as a society. So you're talking about the four decades anomaly of modern monetary yeah. uh, policy, and uh, I think a lot of people say this might be, say correlation is not causation, but I think you make a very compelling case that uh, yeah. the debt-based society sort of corrodes uh, our, our 
our society at the end of the day. Yeah, I, um, in, in my book, I, uh, I spent a, one of my main chapters discussing the concept of time preference and its link to money. And the, the way that I proposed this understanding this mechanism is that if you expect your money to hold on to value, you're more likely to hold on to it, less likely to spend it. And if you expect your money to lose its value, you spend it as quickly as possible. So you look at people in Venezuela, the moment they get their paycheck is the moment they run to spend it all as fast as they can. If you look at people who hold Bitcoin, which is money that is expected to appreciate, they're highly unlikely to spend it. They just hold on to it and they wait on it. And so um, overall, if you compare societies, when periods when money is expected to hold on its value, that will incentivize people to start thinking of the long term. Because effectively, the reason we hold money, if you study what Ludwig von Mises says about money, money, the function of money is um, we need money because of uncertainty. If you actually knew, if you had certainty about all of your expenses, you would never need to hold any money. You would just time your expenses and expenditures and your income so that you could just transfer the money directly from the person you receive it to the person you get it, and you wouldn't need to hold the money at all. The fact that we hold it is ultimately down to the uncertainty that we face because we don't know what we're going to be spending money on. If you knew exactly what you would be spending your money on, why hold the money? Just spend it and buy the thing already. So the, 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 the reason to hold money is to provide for the future. And the better the money is at holding its value for the future, the less uncertainty you have about the future, the more likely you are to think of the future, to account for the future, to provide for the future. And this is an economic decision, but it also reflects on all kinds of um, personal decisions. But I think the most significant one, obviously, is, is the economic decision making. And you see this with uh, saving rates. You look at savings rates of since 1970 in the West, they've uh, collapsed down to zero roughly. People don't really save as any much, uh, don't really save anymore. And the, the one country that remained as an exception is Switzerland, which was the last country to go off the gold standard up until, um, you know, they effectively, uh, you know, all the other countries went off really in 1914, but uh, Switzerland went off in 1970s and still held on to the value of its currency pretty well until the 90s. You see they had the highest savings rates. And, um, you know, I think this is something that is just reflected in many ways. Economically, it leads to short-termism versus long-termism. Um, you can see it in terms of the, how many of the businesses operate, where it's just about getting the next quarter numbers, next quarter numbers, and then very less and less concern about long-term sust sustainability and vision. And then you have generational effects as well, right? Like you, these policies persist for for decades and generations, and I think. Uh, even though we have a quote-unquote booming economy, all is not well, right? Uh, you have families forced into the workplace, everybody's working paycheck to paycheck, cost of tuition, house, housing, medical care is going through the roof. It seems like everything's okay on paper. The KPIs say everything's good, but... Yeah, well, the problem is these KPIs. The problem is that economics, from the Austrian perspective, the correct perspective on economics, if you ask me, economics is not about a bunch of numbers made up by government statistics offices. Economics is about individuals making their own choices for themselves to achieve the ends that they define themselves that are valuable for them. Value is subjective. And so we can always come cook up statistics that make things look nice or bad in whichever way you want it. But in the 20th century, the uh, silly um, statistic that people have obsessed about is consumption. It's just we need to get people consuming more. If we consume more, then GDP is up and then numbers are up. And if numbers are up, then everybody's happy and people get reelected. And so we've had this fixation of getting people to spend more. 
And with thinking of the level of spending as being the level of health, and that's just insane. Um, you know, you can always spend a lot by, you know, as an individual, think about it. You know, if you sell your house and sell all of your stuff, sell all of your capital, sell your business, you can get your consumption up this month higher than it has ever been. Like if you really want to up your consumption numbers this month, this month, sell all of your capital, sell all of your resources and spend it all on a big massive party on a boat. And, you know, consumption numbers have gone up. You're rich. But, you know, what are you going to do next month? <laughs> and this is, I think, this is the incentive structure that uh, fiat money and government supervision of the economy has incentivized. Money is losing its value. People have an incentive to spend. People have an incentive to spend more. And uh, I should mention also not just spending more, but also borrowing as opposed to saving. So you get these incentives that... Um, are rational, really, from in this monetary system. It makes no sense to save money when your money is going to lose its value. It makes sense to spend the money that you have to borrow and to pay off the debt because the money is losing its value. And so in this kind of framework, you end up living a life where the rational thing for people to do or the choice that many people end up doing or at the margin, people move more toward the kind of lifestyle where you consume a lot and you have to keep working all the time in order to keep paying that off. And as a result, you see you know, families uh, th that should be well off, that should be, that work productive jobs, two members of the family have to work to keep ends, uh, to, to keep meeting, you know, the, the, to, to keep covering their expenses. And um, it, it's, it's it, retirement becomes harder and harder because you can't save anything to the future. So um, if you think of society like you would think of a, a farm and you're thinking of how do we get more milk out of these cows, then yes, this kind of model is uh, successful for getting milk out of the cows, milking them to the extreme um, in the short run. So if you're really, if you're, all you're concerned about is getting more milk out of the cows in the short run, then, you know, putting, mistreating your cows on, on your farm is a good way of doing it. And effectively, that's how Keynesian economics thinks of the economy. Uh, citizens exist in order to be milked effectively for the government. And um, <laughs> in this regard, you know, it's a highly successful economic model to just continue to incentivize people to continue to consume and to produce. But of course, it's, it's highly destructive for the people themselves because A, they consume a lot and it's destructive to their happiness not to have the security, not to have the ability to save into the future. And it's also, in my mind, destructive because... It destroys the ability of the individual to accumulate capital for themselves and to be independent, to build their own business, to build the thing that they want to build. It becomes hard for you to accumulate capital. You have to go to get capital from the bank. Getting capital from the bank means capital is much better at going toward larger institutions that are, um, you know, less risk-taking and more um, politically correct in, in, in all the correct ways that are needed in order to, you know, clear the credit from the bank. And so capital accumulation under a fiat monetary system stops being a monetary phenomena that is the result of um, individual choices and people choosing um, correctly and accumulating capital and being rewarded for taking the correct choices. And most importantly, in that kind of free market system, the more, the better choices you take, the better uh, production you make, the more capital you end up with. And so capital allocation is naturally always being done by the people who are better at handling capital because the people who are not good at handling capital constantly losing it. Government intervention in the money market is like a, a, is like a way of shutting down that feedback mechanism. It's like 
destroying that because the capital is being allocated by effectively by the bureaucrats every single time, regardless of whether they succeed or fail. And the, 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 the net impact of this in the long run, I think, is highly destructive. Uh, I agree. And it's the, your, your tangent there reminded me of a, uh, of a tweet thread that you had the other day in response to, uh, in response to uh, Wall Street Journal's uh, head blogger, Keynesian in charge, Paul Krugman. And debt is money, debt is money. And uh, the, the collective we in the Keynesian sense, I think, uh, confuses yes. a lot of people. So can we jump into that and why collective confuses, we is dangerous? Yes. It confuses a lot of people, particularly Keynesians. I think this is really the, the root of the reason why somebody could believe something as absurd as Keynesian economics is to just believe in something that is non-existent, a mythical entity called we, where somehow, you know, if we just all sing the same national anthem and have the same flag, then we magically become the same accounting entity and our pocket is the same. And of course, that's fiction. And I think, you know, um, th th this we is differentiated. It's differentiated today between many different people, but most importantly, it's differentiated across time. It's differentiated between the we that is alive today and the we that has not been born, you know, our children who are coming in tomorrow. And so naturally, um, uh, bloggers like Paul Krugman, who, you know, th th they play economists on TV and they pretend to understand economics, but being a Keynesian, they have absolutely no conception of it. And so they have no thinking of the long term. There's no conception of the idea of the differentiated impact of borrowing today on the future tomorrow. And not coincidentally, you know, um, Keynesian economists are universally employed by governments or government-supported institutions, and so they benefit from this inflationary money. So they benefit from this kind of policy because government debt goes to pay their bills. And so your children will have to pay the bill for uh, government hiring people like him to go around telling you that this is good economics. And the way that he does it is, you know, he conflates himself and your children into one entity called we. And gets over the little, you know, tiny insignificant detail of the fact that he's getting paid from that we today, whereas your children will have to spend their life paying uh, into it. And I think um, th th this kind of intellectual error is only possible really with um, Keynesian economics and also <laughs> with fiat money that is there to support Keynesian economics. We've had 60, 70 years of government's financing this nonsense to be taught at universities. And as a result, we have massive global ignorance of economics. Very few people understand the most basic concept of economics like opportunity cost. It's fascinating. You go to people and uh, you go, I've gone to people and just as a Bitcoiner trying to educate people about money, people don't know what money is. You pull out a dollar bill and say, what is this backed by? I swear to God, still to this day, eight out of 10 people will say it's backed by gold. It's, yeah, it's quite amazing. A lot of people still think it's backed by gold. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think to wrap this conversation up, uh, I believe this is true. I think I can say this with some certainty. Your biggest fear for Bitcoin in the long run is the successful gold standard. Is that true? Yes. I think the biggest risk for Bitcoin in general is the improvement in global monetary policy. Um, ultimately, for all of the differences that we mentioned, for the two advantages that I mentioned in which Bitcoin excels over gold. I am not sure those two are enough to overcome the 6,000-year head start, the first mover advantage that gold has. The physical familiarity, the intuitive way of understanding, you know, 
coin and makes a sound and you drop it. And that's, in fact, where the term sound money comes from, from the sound of the gold coin dropping. I didn't know that. Yep, now you know. So the, the, it's, it, it's ingrained in our culture, in, in, in billions of brides in, in, in China and India and in Islamic countries will continue to get married with gold dowries. And this is not going to change very quickly. So I think you know the, the, the amount of liquidity that exists for gold today is around 100 times the amount of liquidity that exists for Bitcoin around the world. And so, um, you know, I think the, the if we were to have governments move more and more toward the gold standard, or if we have a full gold standard similar to the 19th century, it's not necessarily that I think uh, this would, you know, immediately kill Bitcoin. But I think um, the if you think about the motivations for people that keep Bitcoin alive. You know, Bitcoin isn't just this magical um, super entity that exists out there. There are people out there that need to wake up every morning and, you know, keep it running um, by coding it, by using it, by sending money, by uh, coming up with bug fixes and by upgrading the software and uh, improving it all the time. And this has, you know, there's an army of thousands of people around the world who are doing this every day. Um, making their small little attempts to improve it, building hardware and software solutions for it. And these people, if you talk to them, and I'm sure you've spoken to many of them as I have, you know, a big part of their motivation is that they have seen the impact of government money on their lives and their families, on their countries. They've seen many of them have had their countries destroyed by inflation. Many of them are Americans who don't like that the U.S. government goes around financing its wars from its monetary um, policy. And th I think if you take away that motivation, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's the best way that you could undermine Bitcoin. Because generally, when people discuss how Bitcoin could die, the threats and the, and, and the problems that Bitcoin could face are usually discussed from the perspective of, well, governments can shut this down and governments can fight this. But that, I think, is counterproductive and I don't think governments will go along with it because Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's object purpose uh, is to be apolitical and neutral money. And so anytime your government is going to place restrictions on what you can do with your money, they're going to be effectively advertising apolitical money. So the long-run impact of any kind of restriction on Bitcoin I think is going to reinforce Bitcoin's value proposition, advertise Bitcoin's value proposition, and get more and more people interested in it. And therefore, I think the better way to go about fighting Bitcoin would be to take away the economic incentive for uh, using it. To compete. To compete, exactly. And that's really the amazing thing. You know, the subtitle of my book is Bitcoin, the Bitcoin standard is the decentralized alternative to central banking. And I think this is a highly important point that not many people have factored is that in 2008, if I wanted to send money from the US to China, I had no choice but to go through governments and their central banks and all of the existing monopoly infrastructure that is really one entity, one banking entity around the world. Today, I have an alternative. Today, I can send it with Bitcoin, which means I don't go through the central banks. And this is enormously important. Yes, and it's an exciting time to be alive. Uh, so in the hypothetical future in which, do you see the hypothetical future in which central banks get their shit together and compete with Bitcoin coming to fruition? I'll just say that, you know, for me as a hard money uh, uh, person, you know, I, I, I don't care 
gold or Bitcoin uh, is money, then I'm happy. As long as we take the magical printing press out of the hands of governments, then I'm happy. So if they move to the gold standard and Bitcoin's only contribution was to effectively kamikaze itself in order for us to get back on gold, I think that would be a massive success for gold, for Bitcoin. Um, but I don't see it happening. I think, uh, fortunately, I think, you know, central banks are staffed, are selected. Uh, the central banks select for staff and um, leadership that is uh, optimal for not understanding Bitcoin and not believing Bitcoin can work. I think central banks will be the absolute last people to get Bitcoin. And I think that's a great thing. I think Bitcoin will emerge as an alternative, as we were mentioning about gold initially, if Bitcoin is to succeed, it's not going to be through governments sitting together and starting a new Bretton Woods. It's going to be precisely because we are going to get rid of all these Bretton Woods kinds of institutions and the Plaza Accord and the Genoa Accord. All of this mess of the 20th century of politicians sitting together in order to decide how people from different jurisdictions need to trade with one another. This is ridiculous, barbaric nonsense that we're going to get rid of one way or the other, you know? It seems inevitable in the internet age, right? I mean, we live in the digital age. We've never had access to more information, to more people. Uh, yeah, it's ridiculous that, you know, the movement of value is so... Um, so restricted really and it is very simple once you understand you know if you look at um, if you go to any country where the government has a monopoly on electricity and you compare it to a country where the government doesn't have a monopoly on electricity you notice how different the two systems are and how dysfunctional the monopoly is and i think one day we're going to look back at central banks as in that way it's, it's just an extremely inefficient way of running a monetary system to have it all tied in the hands of a government well I think this is a great place to end this conversation. It's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for sitting down with me Thank today. you so much, Marty. It was a pleasure. Cheers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.